Good morning. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really honored to be with you this morning. Um, I wanted to reiterate again, uh, our building is, uh, is being remodeled over off of 608 Aurora. Uh, we're so glad, uh, really, the, of the hospitality uh, that High Church of Christ has shown us to allow us to, to be here. I do want to let you know, this is just for those of you who are new, it's about, I'd say about 10 degrees cooler in the front. So if any of you are, are dying in the back, there's a huge row right up here. Like I said, it's, it is wonderful to be with you. Um, we have been studying through the book of, of 1 Timothy in a series that we've called The Household of God. And when we began this series, we, we really we set two things up in particular. And so the first week, we looked at, uh, at specifically, we talked about how inside this household of God, inside this church family, is where our gospel identity, who we are in Christ, where that actually gets formed and fostered, where it begins and where it gets cultivated. And then in the second week, we talked about how the same household of God is founded directly upon the grace of Jesus Christ. And we've spent the rest of our time building out what life looks like inside this house um, as we live together as a family. And this week, we're just going to be talking about another structure inside the house, and it has to do with honor. Um, we're just going to talk today about why it's good, why honor is good, how we use it, and why we need it. Um, so Paul is moving to wrap up his letter. And if you remember, the, the big reason why he wrote this letter in the first place was because he heard about what was going on in the Ephesian church. And he, he heard that they were being pulled away from the central message of Christianity, which is Christ uh, dying on the cross and resurrecting to purchase both our sins and eternal life. And since he knew that they were being pulled away from that, he sends this letter to Timothy and he says, I, I know that you're being pulled into lies, into myth, and this is just leading to a ton of speculation. It's pulling people away from the truth. And so that's why he writes this letter. And what I find interesting, what I just actually, what I, what I love is that in, the, in, the, in this chapter in particular, in chapter 5, Paul is, is taking some time to really zoom in and talk to us about really how we treat one another on the ground. And I think that that's very important that he doesn't start with, hey, treat, treat one another this way. Oh, and then I'll stick the, essentially I'll stick the gospel on the end. It's, no, this is who you are in Christ. And so now live this way. And so it began last week um, when Drew preached specifically on, on widows and how we care for those in need, how we can honor them, love them, esteem them. Now Paul is continuing specifically with those who oversee the church, the church itself, and bond servants. And we're going to look at each one of these. But how we show honor, respect, and reverence really is, is very important. And Paul is giving us instruction on how to live it. But he's also going to let us in on some problems that we're going to run into as we pursue it. Now I want to, I want to begin here. And I'm going to tell you, I hope that this isn't heavy, as in I don't want this to be heavy, and I'm hoping by telling you I don't want it to be heavy, that when, when it's heavy, you'll just agree with me that it's not heavy. Does that make sense? Everybody confused? Okay, good. So, so my, father, my father died last year, 
And right after he died, there was this flood of activity, just let loose completely. My, my, my stepmother was on the phone talking with the funeral directors. Then she was putting down that phone and picking up another phone and talking to hospice care. And then she was on another phone talking to a friend. My brother and sister are calling people. There's just this flurry of activity, texts and phone calls. And the funeral director comes over. Hospice is sort of attending to my dad in his room. And, and everyone is, is talking in these really hushed tones. Like everyone's like, I know it's, yeah, I know it's, oh yeah, 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 I know. And, and even hospice care, when, while I'm in the room, they're saying things like, I'm going to move your dad's arm up a little bit. I just, I'm just going to be real delicate and I'm not going to, and then we're going to move his head. It's going to be okay. And I just know that there was all this attention paid to my dad. And I remember specifically talking to the funeral director and I thought, this guy is so understanding. I could say anything to him right now and he would just go with me on it. But I just said, if I just looked at him and I said, I hate your stupid face, <laughs> that he would say, tell me about it. I've been saying that for years and I was hoping that someone would, I felt a connection with you in that moment. And I know. And really the, that was just the beginning because from then on, then it was into the memorial service and my dad had friends, old friends who came up to tell great stories about him and old golf buddies and work co-workers and the, the associate rector gave this great eulogy from my dad and all this attention, all this honor, all this esteem, these great stories, all oh, your dad this, all oh, your dad that. And I heard things that day I'd never known about my dad and I heard things that day that I knew that is quintessential Marshall Pengra. But what I found interesting, and I'm sure what you find interesting, is that when people, when people die, we want to immortalize them. We want to, uh, I've, I mean, I've always thought that, but it really sunk in when my dad passed, and I thought, my goodness, as a, as a humanity, as just worldwide, we just, we desperately want to be remembered honorably. We want to be honored. We want the, the highlight reel to show like our greatest hits, like check this out. And we want the bad, the difficult, and the unfortunate parts of ourselves to sort of fade out. And we want the good and amazing and unique things about ourselves to sort of be lifted up and celebrated. And we have a radical need to be esteemed. And every single one of us wants that. And if we're honest, I think that we probably want it more than we want anything else. Because when we get it, and I know that you know this, but when we get it, we love it. We revel in it. And when we don't get it, we feel the emptiness that it creates. And I think in that we know that it's important because we know when we have it, how we feel. And we know when we don't have it, we know how we feel. So what I'd like to do is really just take a look at this text in kind of three chunks and consider what Paul is calling us to do. So let's just jump right into the, to the first few verses. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So when it comes to honor in the household of God, Paul is going to start with those who oversee the church. The word elder here is the same for pastor or bishop. 
And in this context, as well as our own context today, they were tasked specifically with leadership and oversight of the church. I think Brandon put it beautifully a number of weeks ago when he compared the care of the elders for the church sort of being akin to a roof covering a house during a terrible storm. Big part of the elders' job, a big part of their calling is to protect and care for those in their care. And a few things to mention here that I think are important, and I just kind of want to almost treat this like a sidebar, but I think it's important to note that Paul mentions a plurality of elders and says that some will teach. So just two things very briefly. The proper oversight for a church should be given to a group of qualified elders, qualified men. It is not to be shared. This is not, the, so the CEO model with the, with the deacon board or the CEO model uh, just him on, alone or one person alone, that is not the biblical model for how a church should be oversaw. And number two, all the elders are unified in their office, but they will be different in their function. Um, I think that that's important to know because there will, there will be some elders that will labor in preaching and teaching, and there will be some elders that won't. And that said, Paul's main point here is how we honor elders in their oversight. The word honor here is the same word that's in verse 3 of chapter 5 when talking about widows. The word conveys respect, reverence, and esteem. But Paul's use of verse 18 he helps sort of, he kind of clarifies his point. When he says, you shall not muzzle the ox and the laborer deserves his wages, he is mentioning both an Old Testament verse from Deuteronomy and he's pulling from the words of Christ in Luke and in Matthew. So I think it's very important that we're saying like, look, this is the same God. This is the same instruction. If we take those references and we combine them with what Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians 9, then there is more than good reason to believe that what Paul is making a case for is monetary provision. But I want you to listen to this. Double honor doesn't mean double pay. Does that make sense? And Paul's words are pretty clear in the same letter. The most helpful way to put it is this. Preaching and teaching is a unique labor. The word itself actually speaks of great toil and great weight and responsibility. Even James 3 says that those who teach will be put under greater scrutiny. Paul is saying, essentially, and don't muzzle, when he says don't muzzle the ox, he is saying at least if an animal isn't prohibited from eating out of its work, then an overseer of the church should be cared for just as well, if not better than an animal. So what does this look like for sojourn? Well, I'd like to read a portion just from... Um, uh, from a document that, that Drew gave me that I think is just helpful in sort of our standards and practices when it comes to financial stewardship. I don't know if, I, I know I put it on one of the slides. I don't know if it, uh, we're good? Great. So I'm going to read this, but it'll be up there, and I think it'll be good for you to, to see. When it comes to compensating church staff members, there are three mistakes that we tend towards. Number one, we can approach our personnel like many businesses, shrewdly and economically using compensation as a carrot and stick. We can approach our personnel with a poverty theology, treating them as super servants and determining compensation strictly in accordance with physical need, or we can compensate in clear excess. To aid in avoiding these mistakes, sojourn salaries are determined by an elder overseen delegation of unpaid covenant members, 
And we see ministry compensation as a mean by which the church can shepherd its shepherds, express tangible love and generosity, and speak redemptively into its cultural context. Because our compensation policy is rooted in Scripture and meant to exalt Jesus, we should expect it to look different than any other business. Whereas good businesses pay their employees well, we want to pay our employees generously and lovingly. The laborer deserves his wages precisely because he labors, not simply because he needs the money. A church suffers when it muzzles the ox and makes it difficult for a pastor to manage his household. And when free from monetary anxieties at home, leaders are empowered and the church is strengthened. So in caring for its leaders, the church cares for itself. We live within a society that often measures human worth by net worth, but this mindset is incompatible with the Bible's perspective on poverty and riches. Thus, we hope to see the church redeem employment in practices and compensation, philosophies for our cultural context. We hope that these, we hope they see the sacrificial love, hospitality, and generosity of Christ, and we hope they see economic relationship as it will be when all is made new. So we honor those who oversee the church by remembering that they, while never more or less than a servant, should be respected, esteemed, and provided for generously because of the unique weight that comes with managing, governing, shepherding, and teaching a body of members. And this is specifically true for those who labor and bear the weight of preaching and teaching. And so we do this, as we do this, the weight of leadership is joyfully carried out by the elders and the household of God will live together in mutual honor. But there's more here in the way of honor for both the leaders and those being led. So let's keep moving in into verse 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now Paul is actually drawing again from two sources. From Deuteronomy, where charges would only be heard with the witnesses of two or three. And from Jesus again, who laid out the model of how we confront one another in Matthew 18. We come with two or three. And this is an honorable, practical piece of wisdom from the Bible. The household of God will honor its leaders by not allowing single complaints or charges to be taken wholesale as truth. This is important because in our cultural context, individual voices demand to be heard, and as we, the church, live as a family, this need does get met. Because as we, our individual lives, what we feel, what we do, what we think, matter as they would in any, in any good family. But when it comes to complaints and charges, the household is going to operate differently than the world. Paul is saying, that when a host of witnesses brings a charge against a leader, it should be considered. So why is this kind of living honoring? Why is this good for us? First, if single complaints are taken as truth, it turns our family into a Facebook post where everyone can just fire off what they think, fire off, and, and really with no thought of who that's hurting or who it's affecting. But, if no charges or complaints can ever be brought, then we, our family turns into the Sopranos, where you say one thing, and then you don't see that person again. <laughs> Never actually seen the show. Very spiritual. Um, 
Paul is calling us to operate in a way that makes room for both complaint and correction. That's a healthy family. That's a healthy household. That's an honoring household. If we can make room for legitimate, corroborated evidence and correct those who are in the wrong, it creates a household culture that listens and responds but doesn't react. It creates a wise church that is both guarded and aware that listens and speaks. And that's honorable to the leader being charged. It's honorable to the people bringing the charge. And to the rest of the family, it says, this is how we handle difficulty with one another. If the elder or member is in error, we can lovingly offer rebuke. And I want to say just a sentence about that. The word rebuke is a direct, firm correction. It is not in hate. It is in love. But it is unequivocally correction. So when we rebuke and when we correct, we are letting others know that this is a place that lovingly listens and lovingly responds. And it's this kind of living that guards against gossip, against slandering of one another, and against division. It is wonderful, preventative care. A side note, really as a family, we can deal with complaints and issues face to face because we belong to one another. And I will tell you of what I know of the wonderful elders of this church and the two that will be installed in September, if that's what the Lord has for us, that these men are approachable men. And if they ever are not approachable, then we have a problem and we need to address it. If I'm ever not approachable, I need you to call me on that. In this, no one in leadership is ever too high to be called to the truth, and no member is ever so low that they are kept quiet. And that is a good family. So that's part one of the text, and let's just keep moving and look at the other two parts. Paul talks about what it looks like to show honor to one another, and we'll read verses 21 through 25. So in the presence of God, And of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What I love here, especially, is Paul's recognition of the heavenly court. The heavenly court. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, what the Bible is saying is that, do you remember the the famous speech by Macbeth, Shakespearean play, where he says specifically that, Life is like this poor actor that struts and frets its hour on the stage and then is heard from no more. And that it's, it's a tale, that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And the Bible is saying, 
That is absolutely untrue. This life, all of our lives are lived in the, before the presence of God in the audience of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. Our lives have deep meaning, deeper than we would be comfortable to admit that they have. Our existence is lived before the Father and the heavenly court. So in light of that, in light of that weighty and wonderful prospect, because it is both a warning and an encouragement that life is deep and God sees everything. But Paul says in light of that, in light of that stage, keep these rules. So what is he talking about? He's not just talking about what I just said or the last couple of sentences. He's talking about this letter. Keep these rules. Live this way. He's pointing them to the entire level. So letter for, so pray for one another. Live in compassion. Grow in godliness. Appoint qualified leadership. Give special care to those who are especially in need. Honor your elders. Live like this. And do it without prejudging or partiality. Now, why would he, why would he say that? Why would he say that? I, I was really like, when I, when I read that, I was just like, well, yeah, it seems sort of good that you just sort of throw that out there, like, don't prejudge anyone and live impartially. And in my mind, I just was like, well, why, why would he say that? And I, it helped me to work backwards. So Paul is saying that prejudging, partiality, and hastiness is actually dishonoring to other people. Why? Because when you make up your mind about someone before you know the facts, it's almost impossible to love them, honor them, or esteem them. When you make up your mind about that widow next door and really why she's a widow or really what's going on in her life, you immediately make it impossible to, to engage her, to love her, to know her. I think this is Paul and I'm, I, wanna, I do want to say that I'm, I'm speculating here, but I do think this is Paul giving us some practical wisdom just into God's human design. If you make up your mind about someone, you will not engage them. You will not pray for them. You will not go after them. I would say for those of us who have made up in our minds about our coworkers and neighbors and parish family, our Maybe you could just, maybe we can just sort of take a moment of self-examination. Are the people that I am, am sort of like counting as like not my favorite people? I'm kind of picking these people. These people kind of get pushed aside. Oh, and I'm also kind of, I'm, I, I think I know these people already and I know what they're thinking and I know what they're like and I know how they're living. Like, how are we doing with creating relationships with those people? How are we doing that with our coworkers, our neighbors, with, once we've decided I think I know where they are and I think I know who they are and I don't need to go any further. I think that's why Paul is saying, don't, let's not do that. Let's not judge before we know the facts. Let's not play favorites and start doing this sort of like friendship duck, duck, goose in our life, right? So really, how do we do? How do we do with this? And how do we avoid prejudging? How do we avoid partiality? How do we avoid hastiness? And I think Paul is saying, really, with the rest, <laughs> with the verses uh, 22 and on, it's just that we go slow with one another. 
We go slow. He says some people have conspicuous, easy to perceive sin. Some of our sin is very much, it's just out there. We just, we know. We, it, all we have to do is know one another a little bit and it's, and it, it's absolutely out in the open. But then other people's sin comes out later. And it's the same with good works. Some of it we can see, some of it we can't see. But nothing is going to be hidden. It's all going to come out. So we just go slow with one another. And through time, life lived together through questions and circumstances and situations as this family of God, as this household of God. Our personalities, good and bad things about us, they're going to come into the light and I think the temptation to make our minds up about things and move on is really a tension. But I can tell you what this does. It kills suspicion. It kills it. If we live like this, we don't live suspecting anything about one another. We can actually honor and engage and love and know one another. But Paul is telling us, Honoring people, we go slow. So that's part two. And part three, we won't spend a ton of time on. But Paul is, is talking here specifically about why we should give honor to those who lay claim to us. Let me read verses one through two of chapter six. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. I, I do want to point out that, that verse number two in particular. Paul says in Galatians that we as the household of God are to do good to all people, but especially those part of the household of faith. I know that when it comes to service, sometimes for our brothers and sisters, there is a feeling of, okay, maybe they already know Jesus, and so I don't necessarily need to serve them as well as this person who doesn't know Jesus. And Paul is just saying, don't make that a habit and disrespect your brother and sister in Christ. Esteem them as you would any other person. In fact, make it a point to serve them above and beyond, to outdo one another in honor. But now when Paul uses the term bondservant, he's talking about servitude. He's not talking about 19th century slavery with abuse and humiliation and dehumanizing. That's not what he's mentioning. But I can tell you also that this is not you and your boss. This is not you and your cubicle and your boss the, essentially the, the bondservant master. It's something completely different. And we don't, we don't really have a modern day equivalent. But at the center of these verses is a wonderful heartbeat. And it's a call for us to count anyone who would lay claim to us worthy of all honor. Worthy of all honor and esteem. For what reason? The part I left out, which is, so the name of God and the teaching would not be reviled. So that God's name, what is God's name? It's his character. It's his reputation. So that he would not be reviled and that the gospel message would not be rejected. That is the purpose of showing 
honor to those who would lay claim to us in any way is to treat them with honor and respect so that they would glorify God in heaven. Sojourn, if, if we have really, really good, strong theology and great biblical knowledge, but we treat people poorly, our theology, it doesn't mean anything. That's hard for me because there are a lot of times where I know something and I don't know it. And so I'm not living it and I'm not doing it. How are we doing with all of this? This is what Paul is calling us to. This is what he's saying to the church. He's saying, no, this is how we should live. But the reason, the reason that you and I, the reason that we can't show proper honor is because we are too worried about securing it for ourselves. Because see, in this, in this scripture, all I'm seeing is the outpouring of honor for other people. Even though it's mutual, really it's, we're actually asking people to direct their honor toward elders. Not being too hasty to lay hands on people and make them leaders. That's how we honor them. That's how we honor other people in the church. But the reason that we can't show proper honor is because we're worried about the fact that we don't have that honor for us yet. You show partiality and you make prejudgments because you are the functional center of your world and you decide who's in and who's out. We worry that we don't have the right kind of honor or enough of it, so we're working overtime to somehow get it or secure it or keep it. And honestly, I know that a lot of people were discontent because people don't view us the way that we want them to view us. How many times have you said, I just want them to love me this way? If they would just do this, then I would know that they're for me. Then I would know that they love me. Then I would know that they're on my team. Do you know that you want to be loved in a certain way? Do you know that you want to be seen in a particular light? And when you're not honored the way that you wish, you feel unloved, worthless, unheard, unknown. And when you're not, <laughs> it can push you into great despair. I'll never get it. I'll never get what I need or it'll push you into anxiety. I have got to work harder to get this. And I've got to keep working to keep it. That's why marriage, friendship, work, status, accomplishments, promotions, parenthood, singleness are all failing to get you the honor that you need. And the problem is that living life like this that Paul is calling us to, even if we do it, even if we do it, even if this happens, it doesn't heal our hearts. It doesn't get to the depth that we need it to get to. Just respecting people around us and honoring people around us, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make life better because it's not getting to the heart. And the truth is, is that we will not be able to honor and respect one another until we feel honored and respected. And what I'm saying is not that we need to love ourselves before we can love anyone else. That is a false statement. 
I love me more than any of you will ever love me. I'm good at doing that. I suspect you are too. What I'm saying is that we need to be so radically honored by someone that it frees us up to honor others without agenda. So what will fill our hearts? It is the only the radical honor of Jesus that can fill our hearts. Listen to Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus enjoyed everlasting honoring relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in the Godhead, all loving and honoring one another, sharing in perfect love and understanding and relationship. But while Jesus shared in the honor of harmony and all of those riches in heaven, he gave up that honor to share it with those who were morally and spiritually bankrupt. And that's you and me. He said himself, I have come for the sick, the broken, the overlooked, and those who have lost all hope of honor. And in that act, he did what we couldn't do. He fully honored others while it cost him everything. Christianity has an astonishingly different message of hope because it's not a religion that calls you to walk in humility by only looking at your flaws. Nor does it call you to ignore your flaws because that's not who you really are. No, it says that in the perfect man, Jesus, there is freedom for you and for me for both of those traps. See, Jesus came as the head of the church, the protector of the church, like the great elder of the church, And he defended us, a dishonorable people, by allowing himself to be accused of our sins and disobedience. Where he was arrested, his followers who had sworn allegiance to him left him, scattered and abandoned him. The prophet Isaiah says it this way, that he was despised and rejected by men. Men turned their faces from him and esteemed him not. See, what what happened with Jesus coming to us is that God entered the world and he was hated, dishonored, and shamed. On the cross, we witnessed the greatest example of honor being shared. Because he came to this earth, the perfect, honorable image of the invisible God, and on the cross, he was torn to pieces, dishonored in the highest way. But it was because of the joy set before him that he gladly died. And what joy was that? To get you back. To get you back. Because Christ had to die in order 
that your sin would be dealt with, you can finally, we can finally accept the fact that we are truly undeserving of any honor. But because he was glad to do it, because he considered it a joy, we can finally accept that in him we have been more honored and more esteemed than we could ever dream of. And with that identity, we can easily now give honor to our elders, to one another, and to anyone who would lay claim to us because we have honor in Christ. We have his honor. And now we don't have to scramble to secure anymore. We live free, having been given his perfect record. Because now we're not worried about using people to get honor. We have it. And we're not anxious about securing enough through our works because we have it. And I can tell you, Sojourn, for as much, for as, much as this drops, really, for as deep as this gets in us, that's, that's how much, that's how much it needs to drop in us. That's a work of the Spirit. And I pray that he would make us an honoring people, but that he would convince us that he has honored and esteemed us greatly in his death and his resurrection. Let me pray for us.